It just changes things when you can come and see and um, talk to. Um, so we started off on a Wednesday night and um, we had all of our people that are involved in disciple making, whether we'll talk about how we peel that off for them and give them time to do that. But all of them were, you know, in our, in our church, discipling in different places together. And we had all the ministry leaders just kind of do like speed dating, so to speak, with all the different one-on-one, couple-with-couple, one-with-three, or whatever. Like I said, there's no magic bullet, right, silver bullet. So um, they would just spend five to seven minutes with each person that they would talk to. And our our people were prepared. They knew that they were going to, they could sit there and just listen to them, or they could interact and ask questions. They were around before and after to talk to. Uh, We mix and mingle our people a lot. This time we're going to have probably 10 to 15, maybe 20 of our people during the whole seminar every day there just for interchange. I don't stand, I sit on Thursday and then Friday and we are all sitting around at, at, you know, tables and it's just a lot of flesh and blood put on the brick and mortar of the theology and philosophy of it. So uh, like we said, if it's biblical, right, <laughs> uh, doable, any size church, any culture, and you just get a chance to come see first century believers for where we're at right now, we've got a long way to go. Um, but uh, I'd encourage you to come do that. I mean, we have one coming up here the week of September 16th. That's really short notice. But then we have another one uh, the last week of February next year, 2020. Um, the last week of February. And it would be a Wednesday, Thursday. We quit Friday at noon whatever that last week of February is, you can get on um, archmin, A-R-C-H-M-I-N.org, and you can, um, uh, you can uh, register there. Again, it's free. Um, so that would be the 26th, 27th, and 28th in Mentor, okay? Um, we finish on the 28th Friday at noon, so if you've got to get a flight back and so forth. We try to start a little bit later on that Wednesday, too. So if you need to travel in on that Wednesday morning, uh, we don't start until like lunchtime. Uh, And then because we're going to go clear into the the midweek prayer service where you can interact with the people there. And then Thursday, Friday is full of our people and so forth. Okay, Uh, so I want to let you know about that. Also, uh, November, excuse me, January 20th through the 22nd. Uh, in uh, a community Baptist church in Winter Garden, Florida. We're going to have our sixth annual Arch National Pastors Fellowship. These are pastors that come from all 50 states. And uh, we set out you know, years ago to plant together, and then we realized we were planting and not planting with such good philosophical moorings, theological or philosophical. So we stopped for a little bit. We've been taking a pulse, trying to building the understanding of this culture. So when we plant from here on out, we're planting more with disciple making guys um, and not such an institutional model. We've planted 13 churches out of grace and every one of them is either closed or failed uh, or is failing because we did not plant them with a disciple making model. So shame on us. But it is what it is. A lot of these guys uh, are trying to do the right thing right? They're trying to come back and learn. Um, but we had to take the last five years really to just find like-minded people, give to them, 
just for their own encouragement, find ways like this to strengthen them and then to do this together state to state um, and then partner with them so that we can start planting together. So those are like five things that have just kind of emerged in my mind that have happened over the last five years with these guys from all 50 states. Identify, give, strengthen, partner, and plant. So this year, we're actually going to be helping each other plant six different churches in Florida this year. Um, um, so uh, six different fellows, groups of people, uh, one in Boston, one in Albany, New York, here in the Houston area, um, uh, and uh, four, three other areas in the country, Utah, um, Lincoln, um, Nebraska, um, I think Milwaukee, we're, we're, we're all getting together and we're taking the churches in those regions and we're able to give those churches anything, one of 85 different things that they can do to partner with that plant to help encourage them, whether they're a church of five people or 500 people and everything in between. And uh, so uh, that's a significant part of what we're doing in this year's Pastors Fellowship. It's not a conference. I don't like to treat it like a conference. Um, it's free. Um, no one's in any making any money off of this. Uh, if you can't afford to come, you can apply for um, funds to help pay for your flight um, uh, through, through the registration. Uh, we don't want to be takers. We just want to be givers. But by the same token, we want to do something together too, okay? So um, anyways, uh, you're welcome to come. Uh, as a matter of fact, maybe how many of you uh, registered online? How many, how many did not register online for this? Anyone here? All right, if we, could, if we could just somehow get names and email addresses, we'll get an invitation out everyone who's here we have everyone's email that registered online um, but anyways all right we can keep motoring here I don't know that there's any need to do this do you understand to get the general gist of this exercise again mine was 195 hours and uh, we had some real work to do on that um, but I think, I think it, it's a necessary exercise. I don't think it's a suggested exercise. I think it's a necessary one for you as an individual to, to just go through, to just really z make your mind zero in on how spiritually reproductive are you really being in your community. Remember what I said, I'm not talking about just being out there around unsaved people. What are you doing in preparation and prayer before you even go expecting God to do something? Okay, well... Yeah. But that's not often really the reality of what we do. Can you speak to that? Sure. We, we did, an, we did a, a survey of our church, um, and this was the average, um, the average work week for our membership. Um, and uh, so pastors rarely do 50-hour work weeks. I mean, if you're going to do ministry, right? So... Um, that's the average for our people, sleep, eating, worship, working, so forth. And 
So for pastors, uh, again, as I said earlier this morning, um, we were doing 60, 70, I think just last week from Sunday to Wednesday, I had like 55, 60 hours Sunday to Wednesday before Thursday, Friday. So most of that's not, you know, the, the, the comprehensive understanding of disciple making. I'm shepherding. There's certain things that my job requires. There's certain things my gifting requires. And they're all, I guess, parts of disciple making, but it's not, it's not great commission work. It's just part of my job. Um, I don't know if that makes sense at all. You know, there's a lot of things that the pastor teacher gift, right? All the imperatives of 2 Timothy 4, <laughs> 1 Peter 5, right? Um, they're all necessary for us to do. And I think it's a sliver. They're all parts of biblical responsibility, which is part and parcel of disciple making, but it's not the full circumference of it. And um, we, can get, we can get bogged down in the imperatives without wisely balancing our pursuit of obeying the imperatives and, and, and still being able to keep the, the organic side of, of going out done as well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, we go out with, with gospel intentions. <laughs> um, a friend of mine uh, had, had been in the ministry for a long time. Some of you guys know him. His name's uh, Marshall Fant. And Marshall was trained just like I was and was at Harvest Baptist in Rock Hill, South Carolina for a long time. And wasn't a disciple-making pastor, and and um, by his own admission to me, and he he uh, came up to mentor with his wife um, before he handed the church over to the next guy up and moved on, and 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 just to learn disciple-making for himself. This is a guy that's in his early 60s at that point, and um, so, anyways, the short story is he he. He, he uh, went back to town with a burden, and he began to pray. Remember I said preparation, prayer, and then going. He said, Lord, I haven't had any friends in town that I know really, really well, lots of acquaintances, typical for all of us. And he said, give me, give me someone, give me a place where I can, in the normal, natural rhythms of life, begin to build a redemptive relationship with somebody. So God laid on his heart. Um, the YMCA, and um, I've gotten his permission to tell the story. So he went to the YMCA first day uh, to exercise there. He and his wife exercised other places, but he went, God laid his heart on this particular YMCA, and he got done exercising, right? He's expecting to have an opportunity, and he walked into the little recovery room where they have Gatorades and recovery bars and, and, and stuff like that, and there was a guy um, seated with his back to the entrance door and, and he was reading a newspaper and Marshall looked over his shoulder and um, so this is his first time out. <laughs> he sees a picture of my son, Micah, in the middle of the right side of the newspaper this guy's holding up. And he was just kind of shocked, you know, and... Uh, so he walked over and he got a Gatorade and he goes, hey, my name's Marshall. I know that kid on the paper. He goes, 
do you know who he is? And he goes, I just, uh, I'm a retired policeman from Columbus, Ohio, and I'm a big Ohio State fan. And I was just reading about Micah because I'm a big Ohio State fan. And he goes, well, I'm actually really good friends with his dad and his family. And, and um, um, so they had a really nice conversation, even though Marshall's a big Clemson fan. <laughs> and uh, the short story is that worked into uh, a weekly lunchtime with this guy named John. And uh, months later, I was down there helping Marshall with the transition of him to his son and I was walking through the deacons how that transition went for us back in mentor trying to help them out and when I was down there Marshall said hey I want you to go to lunch with me tomorrow because I spoke on a Wednesday night met with their deacons on a Wednesday night for a while he said tomorrow I'm going to go to lunch with John so he had maintenance this relationship with this unsaved guy all that time and so we went to this barbecue place somewhere out there near Rock Hill and and we walked you know to the patio um, behind uh, behind the restaurant part of the restaurant the patio and um, um, there's there's about 30 guys at least the, the you know the restaurant now every Thursday sets up this long long row of tables and this start of this relationship with this guy, John, who's not even saved yet, had built to 30 guys that Marshall goes and has had lunch with um, a handful of times a month on Thursdays. Um, and I, <laughs> I went down and there was a seat across from John because he wanted to meet me because of Micah and he knew that, that Noah may be going there well. Uh, it was early on in that process, but so we talked, and, and, and uh, John says, all right, everyone, you know, Reverend Potter's going to ask God's blessing on our food. He's not saved, you know. I don't know that there was but maybe one other saved person at that table besides me and Marshall. And uh, they all got beers and wine, and they're doing their thing, right? Reverend Potter's going to pray. Um, but none of you are going to be offended if him and Marshall don't get a beer, right? They don't drink. That's okay with all of us, right? <laughs> and uh, so I prayed and asked God's blessing on the lunch and had a chance to get to know the guy next to me and, and, uh, and uh, even had to get in time to get into the gospel with him. And uh, he was an unsaved Methodist. But it was just lunch. It was one lunch with friends, but an opportunity. But remember where it started. It was a pastor who was burdened that he was not out in town building redemptive relationships. And you got to know Marshall. He comes out of a business family. He sold the family business to go into ministry. This guy knows how to relate with people. Um, but even as a pastor, he said, I'm not, I'm not a disciple maker. You know, he just wasn't. And so, uh, and his wife is phenomenal lady that's gone through the whole nank counseling thing and beyond and she's a tremendous counselor of women and and um, she's like I'm doing counseling but I'm not sure that I'm doing disciple making you know so think about that you got guys in their 40s women in their 40s 50s 60s and 70s that are like 
we're broken. We've got to start somewhere, right? We've been doing a lot, again, of this event-based stuff together as a church, and, and they're still learning, and we're still, we're still learning, right? And we're so used to success being defined in numbers that even when we start off and there's not big numbers, we wonder what's the use, you know, but God continues to do what he does little bit by little bit. But anyways, for Marshall, he had to take those hours for lunch on Thursdays and carve them out. Carve out the YMCA. Uh, uh, Doug Keller, um, his wife passed away of pancreatic cancer, and, and um, they were discipling a couple, and he no longer felt like he should disciple this couple as a single man now. And so we gave them to another couple. Um, to disciple and Doug said pastor he said I gotta I gotta go find unsaved people he said so I joined a walking club I said didn't even know those existed Doug what do you guys do well, we walk <laughs> so where do you walk and he's telling me all the just different years he said but I prayed and God's given me two walking partners now two other widow guys that just are part of this walking club and they can walk up to 15 20 miles a day now um, Gordon Austin, who was, he was a youth pastor at another church and came to grace when that church took some doctrinal uh, direction, deviations, and, and um, grounded in the word and just never a disciple maker. Preached the gospel as a youth pastor. And uh, he got to know the culture a little bit and he still hasn't won someone to Christ yet. But he, he's an extraordinary, He's an extreme marathoner. You know, do you know what extreme marathons are? You know, it's not 26 point whatever, right? These are 50, up to 75 mile races, right? And Gordon's an extreme marathoner. The world's biggest extreme marathon is actually on the southern tip of Africa, in South Africa. It's just crazy what these people put their bodies through. Well, Gordon said, you know, there's a group of extreme marathoners in our area. And, um, and he said, I just prayed that God would lead me to some friends, and he did, and I'm running with them every week. Natural rhythms of life, right? Natural rhythms of life. So I saw him in Sunday school Sunday. I said, how many miles you log this week, Pastor Gordon? He said, 50. 50, that's pretty common for him, you know, 50 miles a week. And... Um, I said, your knees are going to give out on you one of these days. Haven't yet, Pastor. And, uh, and then he tells the class about gospel opportunities he has. Uh, when you're with people that long and you're praying and you're prepared, if you're not giving the gospel with people you spend that much time with, you're probably not praying for them before you go. <laughs> you know, because again, whether they get saved or not, that's up to God, but the burden. So, so we have one lady that, you know, our local senior citizen center, they, they have free exercise classes for senior citizens. And multiple of our folks are going up there and taking part in those free exercise classes every day. And, and they have a $3.50 four-course lunch. And who, who can beat that, right? And so they're just going up there, exercising and then having lunch and getting to meet people. Um, uh, some of our people are doing volunteer work at libraries. They're, they're, they're volunteering at their local schools. 
right, being aides, recess help, whatever. They're, when you get people praying about being in the community, then they'll get in the community. We had a mom who was a homeschooler for years. And uh, the Lord led their kids into a different kind of education. And she says, I don't have to work. What do I do? And I said, well, just pray. that The Lord will give you a creative place to be around unsaved people. And the Lord burdened her to get hired at a local uh, greenhouse, a little plant place. And so I'm getting regular emails from her all the time now. Julie Richard is her name. And I got one last week. You know, just, just pray for our owner. I had an opportunity to give him the gospel and then his wife. And I think they're a long way from being saved, but I went and got a job here so I could find people that need the Lord. And, and so, yeah, it just is on and on and on and on and on where we no longer need to have, you know, group-based things because our people are just out there um, and people aren't just seeing their faces, they're hearing their voices. Um, uh, so anyways, carving out time. Uh, carving out time. Uh, be a good exercise for you. All right? So here's just a little six-question quiz that I think is going to be easy, easy answer. This is taken from a fellow named Aubrey Malfurs. He's written a book called Strategic Disciple Making. He's not a pastor. He's not a theologian. He's a layperson. I think he's an architect. And he's just given a lot of time to thinking for his own life. Am I spiritually reproductive? And he thinks a little bit more systematically. So um, we can go through these questions together. Um, true or false? The only way to disciple a person is for a gifted, mature Christian to work one-on-one -on -one with a believer who desires to grow in Christ. Would you say that's true or false? Why would you say that's false? Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. How many of you had a tremendous desire to tell someone about Jesus right after you got saved? Anybody? Okay. That's pretty common, right? Did you have to take a personal evangelism course? No. Right? We'll study this a little bit later on in Acts chapter 9. You know, the, the Apostle Paul himself had disciples in the chapter of his own conversion. You know? So... But that's one part of the Great Commission living. So while you're going, you're probably going to be attached to someone who's leading you, to train you, to train somebody else. It's all part of these organic pieces that are put together in one whole lifestyle. And so I, I agree, that's false. Okay? The, the process starts the moment that you're born again. Right? And the growing process and growing to be able to lead somebody then. All right? The disciple is a Christian, but the Christian may not be a disciple. Um, the way Aubrey wrote this, the authorial intent is this is also false. In other words, if you are a Christian, you are a disciple maker. And disciple makers do disciple making. <laughs> you can't say I'm a disciple and not do disciple making. Does that make sense? This can also be true, though, because there are Christians who call themselves disciples that don't do disciple making. Right? Uh, number three, disciple-making is only one of several key ministries in the church. Why would you say false, Beth? Because it should be at the center of all that we're doing in the church. Like the purpose of it should be either training disciple-makers or uh, reaching out to the lost and leading them to Jesus. 
that's enough. You're absolutely right. It's that simple. And you see how if we're, if we're connecting our hearts and minds to that clothesline of disciple-making, how that even changes a Sunday school class, a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study, a vacation Bible school. We're not compartmentalizing any one particular ministry away from our Great Commission purpose. Okay? Um, so I'm assuming if I'm teaching my Sunday school class, which is the young marrieds in our class, every class I start with, what's the good news about the good news? What are your disciple-making testimonies? And I always start. Why do I start? Because the church becomes like me. So if I'm starting, right, and so forth and so on. So we do this every Sunday morning, every single Sunday morning in my class. Because... What I'm going to teach them after we do the disciple-making testimonies, they're going to learn so that they can do what with it? Share it with someone that they're discipling. Are you with me? So everything we do is tied to either going deeper in the Word together to prepare to go out, right? (laughs) That's all why we do what we do. It keeps learning organic, right? How does that change the way people listen to your preaching? Mm -hmm. When they're organically connected to someone in the auditorium that they're discipling, they listen differently for all kinds of good reasons. And it changes actually a lot of the application methods that you have in your preaching. Right? Because you're, you're, you're a lot more careful to train shepherds who are shepherding sheep under your, under shepherding. All right? The church should focus primarily on discipling those who are serious about Christianity. Just write 1 Thessalonians 5.14 next to this question. Okay? Paul said that there's going to be the the strong, the unruly, and the weak. And he said what? Be patient with all of them. There's there's really a no-soul-left-behind approach in this disciple-making culture. Um, I think it's inevitable because we're human that One may or two may fall through the cracks over the years, but I'm telling you, we used to have chunks of people fall through the cracks at Grace. We'd meet every Monday morning for prayer, and we'd sit there as like, oh, wow, we haven't seen so-and-so. This is years ago. We haven't seen so-and-so for like three months. Has anyone seen them? Has anyone noticed they're gone? You ever had that conversation with your spouse or in in a meeting with your people? Where'd she go? I wonder where she's at. You know, someone call her. See how she's doing. Uh, I, I can't tell you the last time I remember having that discussion about something falling through the cracks. I'm sure because we're human, they have somewhere. But when you have your people organically attached to each other, shepherding each other, you see how much harder it is for someone to fall through the cracks. And especially when people are doing so conscientiously. Right? Disciple-making involves the edification of the saints and not the evangelism of sinners. We know that that's obviously false. They're, they're, they're organically tied together. Disciple-making is best accomplished by a few in the church who are, 
trained to disciple those who are more serious about their commitment to Christ. That sounds like a lot like number one, right? I think Aubrey wrote it to kind of be a, a rehearsal of question number one, and obviously that's false, okay? The whole goal, again, is, is, the, is the development of new believers to be future trainers while they're current fishers of men, right? And training those who are seasoned in their understanding of God's word to actually be fishers of men, and then to keep everyone organically involved in both. Okay? We're going we're gonna, to um, go through these in just a little bit. These are pamphlets. I brought one for everybody. This is like version 4.0 of this already. We're, always, we're already changing the, for the next version of it. Uh, but this is a map that we give our people to grow each other through. And everyone's set up to at least, at least 80% of our folks now. Um, we jumped about 15% in the last three years. Um, but 80% of our people are at least following somebody as they're trying to win someone. And uh, this little thing we'll go through here on the back. But um, I, I would say a lot of parachurch organizations are really, really struggling in their ministry because they don't have people that have been prepared, having been with someone, to be able to go out and actually be effective on a field. So I hear your pain. And, uh, you know, we just got to get back to local church emphasis on the development of these kids. In the meantime, your job's just going to be hard from time to time, you know. Um, yeah. I don't think I was much help to you, but the reality of what you're facing is what it is. But we just have to, in the local church, change it. We can't expect parachurches or schools to change it because God hasn't designed them to do that. Because they're still going with somebody, right? Chuck and Nancy led Kim to Christ, brand new, rambunctious baby Christian, right? Well, Kim automatically has an influence on one of her friends, right? How do you let a baby Christian disciple another baby Christian? Well, she does it with Nancy. <laughs> so as she's you know, being led by Nancy, she's going with Nancy and also bringing her friend along. And so a lot of the relationships in our church now have just worked into a little triad, if you will, um, where Jesus was working that in the midst of his own apostles in his own life. It's, it's people going with people in the local church and never going it alone. You know, Solomon had that overarching wisdom in Ecclesiastes 3, didn't he? Right? Or excuse me, 4. Two are better than one and a threefold cord's hardly broken. Um, the Lord Jesus lived that out in his own life in his model with his disciples. So, you know, I would, uh, I would applaud what Will said there. No one goes this alone. The problem is they've gotten saved and put into membership and they're kind of going it alone. And then they're asked to go on this trip. And 
Um, it just makes your job a little bit more interesting, you know. Um, but what we found at Grace now is is is, is we um, yeah we're doing our own missions trips now. <laughs> we don't you know aren't sending kids off to, to to schools to let the schools do the full summer missions trips because if we're doing disciple making work, the whole playing out of all of Acts one eight is really centered in the local church. I should never hand my the baton of church planting or foreign missions to any other parachurch organization. That's my responsibility. And I'm not trying to, to teach, you know, our way out of you being employed by some parachurch. I don't know you very well at all. It's not what I'm saying at all. I just think it's really exciting when churches begin to develop their own people to do their own planting and their own missions work. Um, because we know them, because we've walked with them, right? So, um, one of the missions teams we have going out of our church about two, three times a year now, they're going September 1st through the 6th to Pinedale, Wyoming to reside a pastor's home who can't afford to pay for the labor as a bivocational guy. So um, they're going out there. But in that group, it's really interesting. We've got disciplers taking disciplees, right? And going on a trip together now. So they're even growing together while they're serving out there. It's really interesting. Another thing that we're seeing, uh, an unexpected, what we call unexpected God-intended blessings, it's like someone who's discipling someone that uh, works in the sound booth, but if they've won them to Christ in town through a natural rhythm of life, right, and they're discipling them, it's really interesting how the person they're discipling gets an interest in what, how they serve. You know, so we don't have any more issues in the sound booth anymore. We don't have any issues, you know, uh, in, in, in any area of our church, life happens. People are people. But generally speaking, whether it be child care or ushering or Sunday school teaching, or there, there, there's people that are filling those roles now more than ever by following the people into those roles that are discipling them. That, that too is a thing we never thought was a thing. <laughs> so um, anyways, good question. Any other thoughts on these? Okay. All right, let's move on. What is a disciple maker? Um, this is where we'll start digging our teeth into um, a proper hermeneutical study about what disciple making really is. Okay. And uh, there's multiple aspects of hermeneutics, and we're going to try to cover some of those here uh, today. Um, we know that the... Um, Great Commission is given here in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is different than the other two synoptics offering um, of the Great Commission. If you studied out the Great Commission, you've seen that. Um, if you want to open up your Bibles and, and look at Matthew 28, and someone read that out loud for us real quickly, okay? Go ahead. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Great. You guys have preached through this. As a ministry leader, you've taught through it, or you've at least heard a solid exposition of this probably multiple times. That's not my point here today. But do we know what the difference is between Matthew's account and Luke and John's account? Luke and Mark's account, excuse me. 
Does anyone know what the, the wording difference is? Right? So that's the, that, that's the wording that Matthew uses that, that Mark and Luke don't. So if we're going to do a, bib, a biblical theology of Scripture on any particular topic or, 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 or portion of God's Word, we've got to look wherever it's used in the Word, put them side by side and make some comparisons so we make sure we got all the pieces before we can make some conclusions, right? And what we realize is uh, there's an aorist form of the word mathetes here, which is going into all the world and what? All right. All right. The, the literal translation of that is make disciples. Teach. There it is. That's the aorist form of the Greek word mathetes. Right. This is what we do. This is what Matthew has that the other two accounts don't have. But when you put it all together, it does become a central verb as to the activity of what the life of the Christian looks like and what it involves, right? Would you agree with me that though this is a prophecy, <laughs> right, it's also an imperative. It's a prophetic imperative, right? Uh, it's something that's going to happen, but they need to do it and obey it. We already talked about the peanut gallery, who's hearing it. What were their backgrounds? What were their vocations? We don't need to spend any more time there. Would, we, would you agree with me that the word teach or make disciples here, the aorist form of it, would be inclusive of someone being converted? Can we assume conversion in the make disciples or teach? Okay. I think we can, right? Because what's following this central aorist form of mathetes? All right? They're going to be doing what after they make disciples? They're going to be baptizing and they're going to be teaching and helping people observe what? All things, okay? And again, who's doing this? I'm not here to argue about who's allowed to baptize or who should be baptizing in local churches, right? All we're saying is, is that you know, the Great Commission includes conversion, and it includes all the people being involved in, the, in, what, in what follows it, and taking personal ownership for it, okay? In the Old Testament, there, we can't find any Septuagintal equivalent for the exact aorist form of the word make disciples in Matthew 28. All right, again, if you're going to do a biblical theology, even though the New Testament church and Israel are two different entities in the scriptures, Right? you got to look at all the Bible. We can't find an exact form, but this is what we can find. There is an equivalent for the root of the imperative make disciples, and it's found in Jeremiah 12. If someone could look that up, Jeremiah 12, 16, and read that out loud for us. Actually, uh, the root is found twice in this text, and you're going to see it twice. So we want to look for a word that might um, sound like the activity of a disciple the activity of someone who wants to know. Right? Just read it out loud as soon as you get there. And it shall come to pass that they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by a bell. Then shall they build in the midst of my people. All right. 
Where's the first time that you would think that you would see at least the root form, not the exact aorist form? Learn. learn. If they will diligently learn is really what the language of the Old Testament says there. There's learning believing people, and then there's learning pagan people in that text. Okay? And what we know about that word learn, it's the Hebrew word lamad, and it literally means the learning of the whole person. All right? This is really body, soul, spirit. This is the giving of the whole person to understanding. If they will diligently follow, learn, commit their whole person to this. Right? So again, just looking at Old Testament, New Testament, um, interchangeable roots, these people understood that what Old Testament learning included was when I committed myself to learning something, I committed all of myself to it. Okay? Are there any quasi-disciple-making relationships? I know that Israel didn't have a great commission given to her. But what kind of relationships can you see in the Old Testament that would kind of mirror a spiritual mentoring relationship? Good. Among the prophets, for sure. Good. Moses and Joshua. Anyone else? Some might say Moses and his father-in-law for that little situational time period there. Some might even say David and Jonathan. I don't know. Uh, some would say in the school of the prophets, there was certainly something going on like this. Okay. Um, maybe even um, Samuel and Eli. <laughs> right. I don't know. Um, but again, uh, there's, there always seems to be some type of mentor-mentee, uh, which is, I think, part of God's creative order in any human relationship, right? Uh, even the trades have apprentice, right? It just is what it is, right? We have two hospitals in Cleveland that are teaching hospitals, the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals. And if you're ever uh, admitted there, um, your doctor never comes alone, right? There's a school of people right behind them and they all have their, their iPads and they're all taking notes and listening and asking questions and it actually is quite irritating after a while, but you're glad there's someone's learning. But um, anyways, it's just part of the way God created um, us and, and created his world to function, but nonetheless, we'll, we'll keep moving on here. Move forward from the Old Testament and and. 500 to 300 BC, there's the philosophers, and the philosophers had followers, and their followers were called the Mathetes. So long before Jesus is on the scene, and long before this word has been, had been Christianized, if you would, it existed in pagan culture. Right? And these Mathetes who followed Socrates or Plato or Pluto or whoever it was, they were called Mathetes. They were known as the disciples of Aristotle. They were the disciples of Socrates. And this is how they were described in this culture. All right? They were learners. Okay? They had to learn from a master or from a teacher. In other words, if you were a follower of Aristotle, you were um, not going to be a philosopher hopper. Right? You are going to be committed to one philosopher for the rest of your life, okay? 
They were imitators. You study this out historically, and I believe we've given you references where all this material uh, could be found in your notes. And, um, but anyways, they began to follow them even down to the way they dressed, the way they walked, the way they ate, the way they spoke. They, uh, they became complete imitators. So remember, uh, they, were, they were learners from one person committed for life to the point where they began to do a lot of similar things to the person that they were following. It became a religious, kind of like a, uh, in microcosm, uh, a religious subset in Greek culture. And what's really interesting is um, a fellowship would develop if they were true followers after their philosopher would die. So when Socrates died, they didn't go start following another philosopher. The mathetes of Socrates would continue to follow what they had been taught by him, and they would carry it on for the rest of their lives, right? And form their own mathetes to follow them under one master, right? And folks, this is just what pagans do. It's what pagans do. Our local PBS, they have PBS channels in your state. Local PBS station uh, is just watching it this week. Um, uh, have you ever heard of the uh, Victor Hugo's book, Les Mis, Les Miserables, right? The musical, they put a musical together for it. Um, they were doing a, I don't know, it was a 100, 125 year celebration of Victor Hugo's Les Mis and uh, like a 25-year celebration of the musical, and, and they had uh, a lot of the people from theaters all over the country come and do this celebration of Victor Hugo, right? At the end of the program, like the last 10 minutes, they said in order to carry on, right, the memory and the, and the joy that we have from, from Victor Hugo and what he wrote and the, and, the, and the influence of this musical, we adapted a high school version of the musical that can be performed by, for kids 19 and under, right? Because the next generation needs to enjoy this as much as we, did, we have. And then um, it was a surprise to the crowd. You may have seen it on your local PBS. It's been shown all over the place. Um, you can Google it and watch it. Uh, they said, we've invited children from schools around the country that have performed Les Mis, the next generation, right? Generation 3.0. <laughs> And they all started to flood the aisles singing the anthem of Les Mis, right? And it was glorious to watch. I mean, it's chilling. If you've ever seen the movie or you've ever gone to see the musical, it's powerful music. It just really is powerful music. And uh, so I'm watching these children, right, flood all the aisles. And they're joining all of the cast from theaters from all over the country, lead singers, second singers, and they finish the anthem together with this huge orchestra and fireworks going off. It's a big deal, right? But what are they celebrating? They're celebrating discipleship. The world just does it a lot better than we've done it, right? And what are we saying here? Are these saved people? Nope but they're doing something that because they're image bearers of God, they're created in his image, it's natural for them to do. 
Hospitals do it. Musicians do it. The trades do it. Everybody does it because they know and love what they know has to continue. So the local church just fumbled. Okay? The culture recovered it. All right? Now let's move forward a little bit. Period between the Testaments for the Jews, right? The post-exilic background of Christ's mysteries. The Jews, Jewish mind was tremendously influenced by the Greek culture. The Jews basically are saying at this time in history, we're not going to be outdone by the Jews. Right? And so they had followers of the written Jewish tradition, the Talmud. They were called the Talmud. So after the tradition of the Greeks with the philosophers and their disciples, the teachers of the Talmud had their disciples called the Talmud, and this is really the beginning of the rabbi position in Jewish history. The teachers of the law and the Talmud became the rabbis, which is really the history of the existence of the Jewish schools of thought, the Hillel and Shammai school that you've probably studied if you've gotten into an MDiv or PhD work or THM work or whatnot. But um, the Jews don't have the position of rabbi until this time period. And they're basically appointing this teacher of this group of learners because they were being outdone by pagans. Now, true or false, the majority of Old Testament Israel was born again. I would say it's false, right? Often throughout the Old Testament, God addresses the faithful remnant. <laughs> the majority of the elect nation of Israel was never born again. God still used them, right? So, from the Greeks to even pagan religious people, even unsaved religious people, understand discipleship. What are some cults and religious trends in our culture that understand discipleship? Yeah. The Mormons do. Are they apologizing for it? No. They've lost 30% of their membership base since Mitt Romney ran for president. 30%. And they're now even more intentional than they ever have been before. Why did they lose the 30%? Talk to any pastor who pastors in Utah. Because when Mitt was running for president, the younger crowd that really was not well-versed in the history of the origin of Mormonism began to study it. And there's like, you got to be kidding me. This is what we are? <laughs> right? And millennials... Millennials, you're not going to tell them not to talk about what they know now. <laughs> right? So 30% of their membership is gone. They're still having a hard time recovering from that. But they're just as intentional. This is what you're going to do. Right? So many different analogies of that. Right? So many different analogies. If it wasn't for the sexual immorality that was so pervasive, the sexual immorality of homosexuality among the priesthood and Catholicism, right? What do you think they were doing with altar boys and the developing of those boys into what? Right. right. It's natural among even unsaved religious people uh, for this to happen. Right? And this is how the 
followers of religious Jewish tradition, followers of rabbis were described. They too were learners and listeners. They had to have one rabbi. They weren't going to rabbi hop, right? They would pass along those teachings and oral traditions. They were imitators very much the same way that the mathetes were of the philosophers. Okay? They could not be a Talmud without a fellowship. So when their rabbi died, what happened? Would they go follow another rabbi? Nope. They'd form and continue their own fellowship underneath the teachings of that rabbi. Okay. And his approach to Jewish history. And they were expected to serve. This is something that I think because of the mosaic ceremonial aspects of worship in the Old Testament, this was something that was added that the Mathetes did not have underneath their philosopher. But they were expected to serve in the religious side of Judaism. And it was their life, again, to the life of that rabbi for life. So there's a New Testament reality of discipleship. Some 250 different times, various forms of the root or the noun mathetes are used in the New Testament. Right? The first time we see it is in reference to John the Baptist who has his disciples. So what's really interesting here um, is we're in, still in an Old Testament context here in the Gospels, right? The church has not started yet. So I think sometime in human history that these two cultures and the way they learned started to be blended. In other words, the way the Talmud learned was very similar to the Mathetes and vice versa. People knew it was, it was very much a commitment on all these different levels. The Pharisees even had disciples. Okay? Um, Paul, in the, in, the, in the chapter of his own conversion, we're told that he had his disciples. And this is where it starts to get a little culturally dicey. Right? The first woman ever to be called the disciples in Acts chapter 9 and this is Tabitha and Dorcas. You know the story there. She's passed away. But she had quite an influence in her town before she passed away. Do you remember what she did for ladies in her town? She made garments for them for warmth. Right? And we only know how influential she was because those were the people who were mourning her at her death, both saved and unsaved. But she's called the disciple here. We know that Peter's called down and she's raised from the dead by God, and, and uh, uh, the town rejoices. And um, really on the shoulders of this discipling female, the gospel gets a great assist <laughs> to being moved farther and farther into the West. And then you have Lydia in, in Acts 16, right? And on the shoulders of Lydia, it gets even a bigger boost into the gospel being carried into the West. And, and we've seen the Lord use women in a very significant way for gospel advancement in their local areas. Um, what's fascinating to me, too, when Peter comes down and raises her from the dead, where does he stay overnight? Simon uh, Tanner's house. What business does a Jew have staying in the home of a tanner? Not much, right? right? 
So what happens, again, how does the Lord use this lady's life to even uh, see and realize gospel movement from the Jew to the Gentile world? <laughs> Just follow that through. It's, it's a powerful uh, Mother's Day sermon, Ladies Day sermon. What's that? <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're not going to raise anyone from the dead. We're just you know, use her life principle. I found this. I found this fascinating. Um, you, again, you just study the context. There, there, there's unsaved people mourning her death. It's right there. And um, I did preach this text two, three years ago for Mother's Day. And I just challenged the lady. I, you know, I grew up, again, you guys know a pastor's kid. I didn't grow up maybe like some of you. I was around Christianity all my life. But I just started to think when I was preaching through and meditating on preaching this passage, you know, what, what, do, what do funerals look like of faithful Christians? I mean, what, when you walk in, not do they, what do they look like, but who's there? Who's there? I mean, I had my mom and my dad who both passed away within a short time of each other not long ago. And um, lots of others. As a pastor's kid, you're watching a lot of faithful saints go home to be with the Lord over the years, right? And, but you, if, if, you, if you analyze the crowds of these people, um, by and large, they're over 90, 95%, if not almost 100%, uh, attended by people who were birthed, raised, and grown up inside the greenhouse of the church. And we thank God that those kids had a faithful saint to watch, right? She was my Sunday school teacher, right? I sang with her in the choir for 25 years. I prayed with her, right? I did door-to-door -door with him, right? And we praise God for all that, right? None of that's bad, <laughs> okay? But it all happened inside the greenhouse, it's, it's amazing to me how few, if any, unsaved people even come to the visitation hours of storied Christians in our environment, let alone attend their funerals. Why? No one knows them. Let alone loves them because we haven't carved out time in our 160 hours a week to even pray for them, let alone be with them. You know? Something to think about. I think Lydia convicted me that way. Excuse me, Dorcas, Tabitha. All right? But pastors, don't ever forget, <laughs> God loves to use women in significant ways in your local church. Uh, and he, he did so here. Right? Jesus was always clarifying what it meant to be a true follower. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them because they follow me. Does that sound familiar to the, the philosophers and the rabbis? Identical, right? Jesus knew. Take my yoke upon yourself, and what of me? Learn of me. And if you do that, right, you're going to find what? text says, rest for your soul. That's the kind of thing that got Jesus put on the cross because there was never a philosopher or a rabbi that ever in history, now we're talking 500 years now of human history, 
that it ever offered soul rest to their followers. Peace of heart. And people knew that if he was going to do this, he was either a god or a demigod. Right? Only Zeus could do that. Only Yahweh could do that. And so when Jesus says this, he's claiming what? (laughs) Yeah. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So they were, that's why I put here, they're absolute learners, expert listeners. Jesus prayed that they would be obedient, right? In his high priestly prayer, he prayed for you and for me that we would be able to obey his life and the way he lived it. Now, when he's out inviting the the apostles, the disciples to follow him. Think about this now. Do you think that when Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, when they heard Jesus say, follow me, understanding what we know now about a little over 500 years of human history, do you, have, do you think they had a little bit of a grasp on what it meant to follow him? I think they did. I think it's very important cultural hermeneutic understanding of this time frame, right? You have to understand the historic hermeneutic, the cultural hermeneutic, the linguistic hermeneutic of all this, because when Jesus is walking up to them, he's not just saying, hey, follow me. I'm the new dude on the block. And by the way, I know this concept of followship is all brand new, but you'll get it as you go along. They knew, they had watched pagans be faithful to followers. Now they're converted by grace. And so when Jesus comes and says, follow me, it's followship on steroids. If pagans can do this, certainly regenerated people can do this. That's why we think of, you know, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, as newborn babes epithumia, right? They lust after the the milk of the word of God. Babies have to eat. (laughs) And if they're discipled well, they'll feed on the right stuff and they'll be grown well. Okay? So yeah, I think... I don't know. I mean, I just just wonder sometimes if if they said yes to when Jesus said, follow me, if that wasn't their conversion moment. I don't know. But knowing what they knew historically and then realizing who Jesus was... By watching him in their community, when he said, follow me, I wonder if that wasn't an invitation <laughs> to conversion. And, and they knew at that moment that it was going to be a different kind of fellowship from what they had understood historically. All right? And with, even within the Jewish community. Okay? When Jesus died, did anything happen with what he taught them? Did they do something with it? Yeah, you're right. They just kept right on going, right? Death, burial, resurrection, 40 days on earth, ascension, commission at the ascension, Acts 2, Spirit of God comes, the church begins, and there is a fellowship, isn't there? Did they go follow another rabbi after their rabbi died? It was his life, their life to his life for... All of their life. All of their life. 
And Jesus said, listen, you put your hand to the plow <laughs> and take it off. He says, you're not worthy of me. And now he can say that, because remember, there's a divine aspect to this now, not just a religious pagan aspect to this. No one who's truly born again takes their hand off the plow. No one does. Okay? And what does the writer of Hebrews say? If someone does, whom the Lord loves, he, he chastens, right? And if they don't respond to the chastening, what does 1 John 5 say? For the believer, there is a sin unto death. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? This is why many of you sleep. Jesus will never let his name be dragged through the mud of Christian unbelief. <laughs> or Christian disobedience, should I say. Right? There's no discipline. There's no early home going. There was never any conversion. This is what regenerated people do. This is just what they do. Okay? And by the way, remember pagans were doing it. <laughs> How much more Jesus followers. Jesus, too, continued on with the rabbinic tradition of serving, right? As a matter of fact, that was the Pledge of Allegiance of his whole life. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many, right? That's, he lived that. He lived that. But he added something that neither the philosopher or rabbis had added unto that point. Uh, he said, you, you know, you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And we all know that they did. Uh, but he added something else here that the others didn't as well. And he said, I'm going to reward you. Right? I'm going to reward you. And that reward is just not only in the here and now. Um, it's, it's in eternity. Okay? So what's the conclusion? Is this somewhat of a rhetorical question now? I think it is. We understand what he meant when he said, follow me. What can we assume the conclusion of a new believer would be? So we better, we better help them, right? I think, I think the Lord Jesus has not been sending many baby, new baby believers to our churches because we haven't had nurseries prepared, people prepared to shepherd them or to lead them. Did you ever think about that? If you've had children... You were pretty careful in picking their babysitters, weren't you? Right? You're going to put your kid into some type of daycare or child care today. You're going to want to put him into a place where there's background checks done. There's fingerprinting done. There's, there's, I mean, you care about where you put your kids. Don't you think the Lord cares about where his kids go? And why aren't, why isn't our stripe seeing people born again on a regular basis? It could be because of the health of the flock or the lack thereof. I just wonder. What protective value would mentoring these new followers of Christ have on your local church? What protective value would this preparing every saint to do 
The work of the ministry is described in Ephesians 4. This is, this is a question now that's not rhetorical. What protective value would you see if the majority of your people had the ability to shepherd somebody else in the word unto being a proper witness for Christ in your community? What kind of sheep do you have? I was just going to continue when the church would continue. Yeah. There's, there, there's, there's natural, you know, true spiritual succession. Okay. Healthy sheep love to keep things healthy. Right? Healthy sheep are able to diagnose illness. And they're able to treat the illness. Healthy sheep become tremendous um, not watchdogs, but discerners for the local church. Disciple-making people are able to discern a wolf's and, and sheep's clothing sometimes a whole lot faster than their pastor can. Right? Why? Because they're going deeper in the Word. And the deeper they go, the better discerners they are. And they're doing this together, and they're seeing people saved and growing in the Lord, and it's healthy, and it's joyful, and it's good. It's progressing a little bit at a time. And so they're able to see, sometimes a long time before I am. Pastor, I, we, I don't know. And how do they discern if it's not a good situation? Well, what are they doing? They're inviting this new person to Christ, and if they make a profession of faith, what are they doing? We're getting into the Word together. And what happens if they make a false profession of faith and you want to get in the Word together? And they never do, but boy, they want to keep progressing in the membership. And they become baptized, never wanting to study the Word together. And they become a member because they got baptized. And then they get serving somewhere in the church and never along the way really having an appetite with the Word of God or even being um, tested as to whether they do or not. If they're not engaging in disciple with someone, they could just say, yeah, I'm reading my Bible. Yeah, I love the preaching here. Yeah, but who's verifying that? There's a lot of wolves in modest dresses and three-piece suits in our churches all over the country. Okay? It's been my experience. And we never knew they were because we weren't interacting with them in a biblical fashion. So what protective value? <laughs> okay. Interestingly enough, I think 1 John 2, Acts 20, both John and Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, himself prophesied that there would always going to be wolves among the sheep. So think about that. Even in a solid disciple-making environment, you're still not going to be able to avoid that inevitability. So how much more, then, would we need to have people be trained in disciple-making? Because then your, your people are able to discern it and deal with it. Right? And uh, that's a whole lot better than someone saying, oh, wow, I heard someone say really a, a doctrinal error, and boy, I'm going to call Pastor Tim. This is a 911 for him. Right? How about people that are able to already address it because they're involved in those personal relationships? And if they don't respond, then they have you have your own people starting the Matthew 18 process instead of calling the pastor to start it. 
Are you with me? What happens if people need to start that process with their own pastor? No one ever does 1 Peter 5, 19 and 20. 1 Peter 5, 19 and 20 is just the Matthew 18, 15 to 17 only for pastors. No one ever does that. Why? Because they're not discipled unto the integrity to do that. How in the world can I confront a pastor on a doctrinal or a moral flaw? He's the pastor. Right? We can vote to have him fired. Right? But the Bible doesn't talk about a firing of a pastor. The world fires. The world hires. What does the church do? We fire and we hire. Oh, really? I don't know. I want to look at Acts 13 and 14 and you might want to look at the pastorals and, and figure out how we get our pastors and how we lose our pastors. We don't typically do it biblically. Okay? But discipling people uh, know how to even discern the health of their own pastor. I have never been more helped in my life than I am now as a pastor of a disciple-making church. I've never been more personally protected. I've never been more personally loved, cared for, guarded, right? No one's lording over me. No one's my watchdog, but they're deeply concerned for me and the direction of our church because they love what's going on, right? Uh, and it's, it's very healthy for us, very healthy for us, and very transparent, right? No one should be fearful of going to talk to the pastor, right, in a healthy church, it should be just natural, transparent conversation. No one should be angry about doing it either. No one should be all caught up in emotion about doing it either, right? <coughs> Let's just talk. We're a family. That's what we do. Okay? From a discipler standpoint, how much time would need to be invested in a new disciple? Understanding what we understand now. Yeah. How often during that day, during that week, during that month, during that year, during that lifetime? Yeah, I want to beat a dead horse, but if you've had children and brought at least one baby home from the hospital, that's pretty time-consuming, isn't it? Right? Why are new believing babies any different? When we really skinny this down to the understanding, historically and biblically, when you really skinny it down, how much time could I ever expect my people to give in disciple-making? How many people should I expect them to disciple? For me, just one. Just one, right? Remember our 168 hours? <laughs> There's only so much time, right? Some can do more but all can do one. And sometimes, if we don't analyze our 168 hours, we don't even have time to do one. Remember, I didn't. Right. I didn't start discipling people till Dan and Karen Smitko. Right? Jan Demokas. Right. 
and Frankie, and Jordan, these people. I wasn't sitting down going through the word with anybody. Well, you did that with your deacons, didn't you? Yeah, once a month. But I don't know that I was being a disciple maker. There was just more talking shop and budget and things that had to get done. That wasn't disciple making. We might read a good Christian book together once a year, but we might pray together, but that really wasn't disciple making. Right? It's just me reproducing myself in somebody else that I've won to the Lord and doing the same until we win someone to the Lord. Right? All right, so it takes a lot of time, and, and so therefore we're going to talk about how you car- help your people carve out time to do disciple making. You can't just tell them to do it, you have to assist them to do it. Well, this is where, this is where a lot of pastors disconnect here because they can't wrap their minds around how we enflesh this to our people, so we're going to spend a lot of time doing that together, okay? Um, but since this is biblical and we're their overseers, we have to give them the assist to help them actually get to the table, literally get to the table to study with people and then carve out time for them to do it. Because sheep are not going to do it on their own. They're sheep. They've got to have a shepherd to do this. And then you train them to shepherd a soul like that and then it'll be a so on and a so on. Okay? So this is really where we get our one life to a life for life reality. Is a magic bullet one-on-one? We said what? No. But we know, at least, it was the life of a mathetes to the life of a philosopher for life. The same with a Talmud to a rabbi. The same with a disciple to Jesus. And to Jesus to the disciple. Right? And from the rabbi to the Talmud. And from the philosopher to the mathetes. They're organically linked. Okay? For the whole of their life. So this is why I say going back. When we're going through learning the process of what this is for church... And it's been a process, and we're still learning, but one book and two churches, right? Remember one book? Mm. One church in Kansas City, Missouri, right? Nine books, four years, better. But is it still that? No. And this is where pastors just really, it's either a drop-the-mic moment for them, like, wow, I get it, or it's drop-the-mic and no way. It's just going to take too much time to change. So we'll just keep coasting. This is, this is really the moment. This is really the moment. You either get this and we go, or you get this and you say, I don't want to go, I'm fine the way I am. Because who in the world has time to train people to do that? And I would just say this, we just can't afford not to have time, not to train people to do this. Okay? And once it's up and going, it's self-perpetuating. It's self-sustaining. Okay? All right. Any comments or questions? Yes, sir. So, I know you might cover this later, um, but what, what are some of the, uh, I guess you could say, the cautions for one to watch out for when you're discipling and you're pouring your time into someone to help them to become a disciple and I understand we're patient with all men that where you kind of like say all right you're not you're not trying you kind of recognize they're not making an effort so so do you is there a different strategy or do you continue to pour less time into them more or they need more time or is there like what what are some things that you have seen from your experience where you can say uh 
Lord, you know, try this or try that, or, mm-hmm. or think about this, think about that. How's this to pump you up? Most people you start with won't continue. <laughs> That'll pump you up to do this, right? All that glitters isn't gold in that regard. This isn't, this isn't a just add water and you'll have success. Right? Remember, you can't make the Broadway narrow and the narrow way broad. The higher percentages of people that are truly born again, when they start, they continue. But they'll struggle. They're sheep. When they do struggle, this is what we found. They'll either compl- they usually completely just walk away. They don't even keep coming to church. Right? Many of them don't even come to church because we're asking them not to come. Come to Christ and let's just start studying together. And let's grow together. And trust me, you'll want to worship. I won't have to ask you to come. You'll want to be there. Most of them just walk away. And we, we probably have the higher percentages of them walk away. Probably over 70% that start walk away. But that 30% that sticks, right? Remember, we're not going to despise the day of small things, right? Um, they'll struggle. So what we do is, you know, if they're growing and, and they're struggling then. And let's say they don't even show up for their discipleship for like a month. All right, we just train our people to text them, say, hey, how's it going? Drop them a call, say we miss you. Just say, you know what, I'm here, same bat time, same bat channel every week. The table's set. When you want to come and eat, I'm here. Just know I'm praying for you. It's not dust off your sandals, cut the cord, and go on to the next one, right? Uh, there's, no, there's no sheep left behind. And for that 30%, they're all going to struggle to some degree, some more than others. Um, but when, when we have that, since we have that mindset and that disposition, they all end up coming back to the table. Okay. 70% start and they walk away. And I just think it's just proof that there was a profession and not a confession. Um, there has been a handful of that 70% that have come back after decades and they've just realized, you know what? I was never born again, but I am now. Yeah. My brother was one of those. Yeah. Yes, sir. Sometimes when you meet somebody for the Lord, you pick up all their bad days, <coughs> alcoholism, drugs, all kinds of things. But sometimes you have to help them work through that to get them to set down with the Bible. Yep. And that is yep. an opportunity for you to grow. Can you help me pass these out? And you're there to help them. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it is. When you get these, please don't open these. I know that's going to be all of our tendencies. And you didn't do the wrong thing if you did. I just, I just have to, I just have to, our, 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 I mean, we're so used to just grabbing and getting in to see what this is, you know, and that's okay. That's a good thing. I just want to talk you, I want to, what's that? Yeah, right, right, right. Right. So there, there's, whole, there's a whole philosophical order to this. All right, you're going to see this detail tomorrow. 
But I want to go through a little bit of the flesh and blood of what this looks like at Grace. We're done with the historic biblical theology and, uh, and, 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 a, and a good portion of Scripture. We're going to study a New Testament church that I think modeled this in, in Thessalonica. All right. Um, but so everyone at our church gets this once a year. We encourage them to keep it in their Bibles. Okay. And we leave them out in our lobby. Uh, so let's read this together. Um, what does it say on the bottom? Right here. What does it say before that? Your. Whose is it? It's not Pastor Tim's. It's yours. Your disciple-making life. What do you need to do to take the next step? So the assumption is no soul left behind. Every believer is going to be doing this. Now, what are we going to do? Turn over the back. Ken's opened it up. You can't disciple anymore, Ken. <laughs> You're toast. Just kidding. On the back, you see the number one, obviously, in the background. All right? Everyone, win one, lead one, follow one, take one. Every believer should be trying to at least win someone to Christ. If they do win someone to Christ, we want to prepare them as pastors to lead them. While they're waiting to win or to lead... We want them to at least be following somebody. And we provide twice a year two classes on a Wednesday night for six weeks, an hour, so six, six hours of instruction on a special topic. We encourage disciplers and disciples to come in. They're called T3 classes. And um, we usually get between 60 and 85 people for those to come and learn something um, to grow their spiritual muscle because they can only take the person they're leading as far as they are spiritual, spiritually. Okay? So this is, and everyone at Grace is somewhere on this little process. Everyone at Grace is. Are you with me? Did everyone get one of these? Right? Everyone somewhere. There are a few people, right, that are able now to do all of it. Because they've won someone and they're leading them and they're following someone and they're continuing to learn in separate classes. Okay. I don't know the exact percentage of that, but I could give you a pretty good healthy group of names of people that are at least doing that. Right? Took me a long time to be part of the whole. <laughs> right? Many of our leadership is not part of the whole yet, but they're part of some of it. Okay. Um, our whole um, this is how backwards we are I, I think our leadership is really descriptive of my wife and I's life right the majority of the men involved in our the leadership structure of our church and their wives have never won someone to Christ they're part of that 95%. Okay? Now you think about that. Remember, we have in Sunday School, we have in VBS, we do have a burden for lost souls. We counsel people at invitations, and all that's good. But I'm talking about something else, right? Okay. So don't beat yourselves up. But a, something like this is just a constant reminder to people, not lording over them, but just a constant reminder of a goal. 
And when we're transparent and saying the majority of our leadership, including your pastor, was not part of this for a long time, at least it's a goal. It's a benchmark, okay? What we found out, if you'll open up just to the middle, it's all white, it looks like this. It says learning, loving, worshiping. What we have found out is over time, okay, is that the people of our church that are involved in disciple-making become better learners, better lovers, and better worshipers. It's really interesting. The voracious appetite for God's word increases because you, we've already discussed that. Really knowing how to be, love and be patient with people really increases. People are saying all the time now, Pastor, I don't know how you do what you do because I'm doing it and I don't get it and I'm doing one and you're doing what? Why in the world do you even keep doing this? They're saying that more and more because they're getting it. They're getting what shepherding really is. Okay? And by the way, they become great protectors of worship. Right? We have worship wars, people, because we have people who are not disciple makers. Do you understand this? That's the only reason why there's worship wars. People have way too much time on their hands. And that's the only way they know how to grow their church. They're growing it. Jesus isn't growing it. In a church that's a disciple-making church, when Jesus is growing it, it's amazing what you don't have to do <laughs> and what you don't spend a lot of time talking about at all. And they know how to protect the integrity of worship. Disciple-making people, the last thing on their mind is bringing in any thread of the world and what it is into the church. But non-disciple-making people, they got a lot of time to think about it. And they've got to find out some way, some, again, magic bullet to make the church grow. Right? And our westernized model. So, yeah. This is, again, this is something we've written, and this is not the first version of it, right? We're working on five or six version of it now. But we just keep adding these things because we're learning this is what disciple-making people are, right? Now, remember the, the, the illustration of me and Donnie, right? I had the opportunity to lead Donnie to work. What the rest of this is, all right, we're going to open up to it in a moment. What the rest of this is, is a pamphlet that's a pathway that my pastor has written for me or approved for me, material, that I'm going to study with Donnie for the rest of my life. All right, so if you want to open it up all the way for this. All right, now before we look at it, even though it's open, I want our mind's eye together as male and female ministry leaders, I want our mind's eye to go back to what we said about Ephesians 4. Because if you don't do that, you're going to look at this very institutionally. Are you with me? And we're going to forget all that we went through that disciple-making is not on that slide. Especially if you have the gift of teaching. You're going to hunker down and you're going to handle this like curricula in a classroom. You're not going to be a shepherd. You're going to be a teller. It's not what this is. This is the absolute antithesis of that. 
So my pastor's written or approved. What I'm going to do is a factory worker who won my friend Donnie at the factory to Jesus Christ. Because remember what I said earlier. In a disciple-making church, over 90% of your converts are now probably, it is in our place, going to come through your people, winning people to Christ in the natural rhythms of life, not at event-based evangelism. Right? We're not going to stop the event-based, remember? But now I just was at Donnie. I've been praying for Donnie for like seven years, and we've gone fishing, and I've got a burden. My family's praying for him. I've got people at the church praying for him. And one night we're out fishing, and I actually had a chance to lead him to Christ. We didn't even have our Bibles open. By the way, how in the world did people get saved before the Bible was around in written form? Right? Most of the people, my seven friends that I've won to Christ, it was not with an open Bible in front of us or even with an open tract. Is the Word of God just as powerful spoken as it is read? <laughs> right? I'm not saying don't use resources. I'm just saying in the natural rhythms of life, I can be baiting a hook and talking about Jesus at the same time, <laughs> you know, and using God's word to do it, right? And he's respecting it. He doesn't know that it's God's word, but I know it is, and I know that the word of God never returns useless. It's quick and powerful, and a whole lot more influential than talking about how to bait a hook. It's just a natural rhythm of life, right? So anyways, he gets saved. Now you really have to follow along, because this is not institutional, but relational, you really have to follow along carefully through here, right? So we start with a couple resources. I have two of them here in English and Spanish, okay? Um, we start uh, years ago. Remember we had those nine books? We brought those nine books back from Kansas City. We went through them a few times with our people, and we saw some doctrinal um, things, and, and we just thought, you know what? Thank God for the time we had them, but we thought we're just going to write our own stuff, right? So our staff got together and we put together these 12 lessons, okay? Uh, I think this is, this is what series, what, what, what version is this? I'm 6.0, 7.0? Anyways, this is the foundations, right? So if you look up here, what does it say right here at the top of that first arrow? Let's begin. begin. So Donnie, I'm inviting you. Will you start studying the Bible with me now that you know Jesus? And Donnie's probably going to say if he's truly born again, what? Yep. I said, Donnie, and I've got a Bible study book. I'm going to buy you a Bible if you don't have one, or I'm going to help you load one on your device. And, and we're going to get these together, and we're going to, we're going to study together. Okay? Right. And we're going to go through here. Right. Jump down with me if you would. What's the tiny little print say underneath that green arrow? Meet weekly with your discipler. So during the whole time we're going through the material here, three different things, how often am I going to meet with Donnie? Once a week. When am I going to do that? Right? This is as a pastor where I felt responsible to shepherd our people, equip them to do this work of the ministry. I did not want to ask them, because remember, we've already evaluated the 168 hours of our week. There's no more time. All I can do is carve out time for me to be out there, right, being a disciple maker, which includes my time I'm spending with Donnie. So what we did 
I began to allow, we'll study this tomorrow, how we all came to the process. I began people to allow to study during prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We're already there. We're starting every Bible study here with evangelistic prayer. We're praying. We can share a couple other requests together, right? And then we're going to study the Bible. I didn't get much pushback. I got a little pushback on that because there's a sacred cow of a midweek prayer service, right? It's fine. Prayer services are biblical. We're not going to get rid of them, right? But how can we utilize them? How can I utilize it as a pastor to equip saints to do the work of the ministry? I'm going to give them Wednesday nights. Right? I had one older couple that said, Pastor Tim, this is prayer meeting. We pray here. And I said, my friend, I know, but we don't pray as often as long as we should. And that's the same couple that was like, if you don't do a, a, an exposition on Wednesday night before you pray, they'd be upset that you didn't do the exposition, even though they're asking for more prayer. <laughs> so do they really want prayer meeting or not? It's a, it's a debate, right? But it's prayer meeting, and since it's called prayer meeting, we're going to pray. We're going to preach for 40 minutes and pray for 10, but it's called a prayer meeting. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so you work that out. So I worked it out with this couple, and they're fine. And we actually told them that they're probably praying more out, lobbying, studying together than we are in the, in the auditorium. Uh, but anyways, so we're out in the fellowship hall Wednesday nights. Is he coming to church yet? I haven't invited him. But if he's out in the lobby studying with me, is he at church? He, at least he knows one time when we have a service. He might get inquisitive about more, and I'm sure he will, because he's a new believer, about worshiping, and we can talk about that, because the lessons talk about that. And we walk him into it, okay? So once a week, we go through the foundations, and then we have a Let's Meet the Family. That's a three-week course for two and a half hours for three weeks. And this is basically probably what you would call your membership class. So I know when we're going through this, He's going to be growing in the Lord. He's going to be watching people coming in and out on Wednesday nights, knowing that this is a church thing, but he knows the priority of my life with him, and he's going to be gradually growing into more and more interest with that. It takes most of our people about two and a half years to get through this with each other. So just so you know, most of our people are in our church for over two and a half years before they become members. There's some people that become members more quickly, but the majority of new believers, we're not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry. I've got one room of 65 ladies discipling each other every Wednesday night, all right? And I think there's only like five members in that group, okay? We're not in a hurry. So two and a half years. I'm not pushing membership. It naturally, organically comes when you're shepherding well. Okay, so he takes the membership class and hey, when we're done with that, Donnie, he's a member now. I'm going to lead him into one part of service, right? What does the small print say underneath uh, meet the family? Yep, I'm going to walk him into if I'm an usher. Hey, Donnie, you know. You're, you're a member now, you're coming to church now, you know, every, everyone at Grace serves in at least one area faithfully and, 
And um, how about if you follow me into learning what it means to be an usher? Remember, the most important thing that you do, right, as a learner, lover, and worshiper is the disciple-making life. So we really want to win your wife to Christ and your kids and the next guy down on the line at the factory. That's really what we want to do. But we're going to continue to learn love and worship, and we're going to serve. Because remember, that's what disciplers do. <laughs> Whether you're a Mathetes or Talmud or a New Testament believer, we're going to serve. All right? And so come be an usher with me. If you don't like ushering, we'll figure out someplace else for you. Um, 95, 97% of the members at Grace Church now um, serve faithfully in at least one area. Before, it used to be the old 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. And that's just not the case anymore. <coughs> Disciple-making people, unexpected God-intended blessing, disciple-making people naturally come into service because they love the place and they want to help and they want to protect it, right? So anyways, um, we go down to let's walk together. And that's this resource. We wrote, got together and we wrote 10 more lessons Again, it's in English and it's Spanish. I'll leave these up here. You can look through them, right? And it's called The Walk, right? So I'm still meeting once a week together with him on Wednesday nights. He can be sick one night. He can get called to overtime one night. He can be on vacation for two Wednesday nights. Not a big deal. He still knows our nights Wednesday night, okay? If he says, we'll get into that later. So we're going through this. Another 10 lessons. For most of our people, again, not the seasoned veterans that might move in from out of town or whatever, most of our people, it takes about five years to get through this first arrow, okay? And, and, and we're not in a hurry, okay? We're not in a hurry. Um, everyone that comes to Grace, even if they're a visitor on Sunday, night, on Sunday morning or any service that's not... Um, our people don't have a relationship with, right? They're just church hunting, and they found us on the web, right? They come, and they're introduced to a Bible study, right? And so our people know that when, um, if I'm meeting again, Donnie, for the first time at the door, hey, how's it going? How'd you find out about us? Saw you on the web. First church you came up. I'm looking for a new church, and here I am, right? Uh, said, so, hey, great, glad to have you. I did this with a couple on Sunday, right? And a new married couple, and I was the first one to have interaction with them. They didn't know anyone in our church. They just moved in from Virginia. I said, hey, this, so, this, so this is what we do. You know, if you're not comfortable coming to a service, that's fine. We like to invite everyone to a one-on-one or a couple-to-couple -couple Bible study. And we just want to build a relationship with you around the Bible. And uh, would you be interested in that? Oh, yeah. Wow, it's really, that's really unusual. Yeah, I think I'd like that. All right, good. All right. And so I can call, right, the Hicksons over, and I can say, hey, meet so-and-so. And as soon as the Hicksons shake their hands, what do the Hicksons know, based on what you've heard so far? Pardon? For how long? For as long as they're at Grace Church of Mentor. And I've given them either written or approved what they're going to study with them, and I've even given them a service to do it. Are you with me so far? <coughs> yes. Okay. I'm not sure if you're going to cover this later, but 
thought, mm-hmm. what, what if by chance that you have more, um, more people that want to be disciple than those that are ready to teach? So how, how can you, would you say, okay, well, instead of just doing a one-on-one, it's like a one-on-five or something like that? Are you coming back tomorrow? Yes. Okay. I do cover that okay. very granularly tomorrow when we continue to put flesh and blood on this. So I promise to answer that. And if you don't hear your answer tomorrow, which I think you will, just raise your hand and say, I'm still a little foggy on that, okay? Because that is a thing, (laughs) for sure, right? So, you know, let's say that Donnie wins the next guy down on the line to Christ when we're halfway through the walk. That's pretty cool, right? And now Donnie's a member. And now Donnie's going to want to disciple that guy. So where does Donnie begin? Let's begin. When does Donnie do that? When? Wednesdays. But we're studying on Wednesdays. Thursday. This is the fun part about this. We don't go to church on Thursdays in our context. We can do that, right? He and I can do it together with him and go back, right? Or, or um, he can study with him off-site if he wants on his own time, which I would not encourage because I don't want him to be away from his wife and his children doing something about church if they're not saved yet because he's already spending more time away from them than they're comfortable with since he's been saved because he's doing something on Wednesday nights that he usually used to do with the family. Remember the context. There's a different scenario with every newly saved person, right? So we're not done yet, right? So what I can do, and our people do this, I can say, hey, look, why don't you meet with this guy for a little bit before prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, and then you and I can meet just till we're done with the walk. It's only a couple more chapters. He can study with us. We can study together. You can finish the content of the walk, and we'll review it. All different kinds of creative scenarios. Or Donnie, our pastor now, also allows us to meet on Sunday nights during the evening service. So if you're free at 6, you're already a member, you're already coming to Sunday night church, you're not ushering on Sunday night, you're ushering on Sunday morning, because we don't want to make service expendable because we get to disciple somebody. Let's meet on Sunday nights at 6 every week just till we finish the walk. And you go ahead and meet your new buddy for discipleship on Wednesday night. So now we're involved with discipleship on two different services. We don't go to prayer meeting, and we're not going into the evening service. It's a little bit bigger of a sacred cow to slaughter for some. Because we've been learning all of our lives that discipleship is primarily happening through hearing expositional preaching. And pastors have been taught that, right? That the more preaching our people get, the healthier they will be. 
certainly nothing wrong with expositional preaching. As a matter of fact, you'll find out that if your people are discipled, well, they'll hunger more and more for it. Okay, And you'll have to provide it. We'll talk about that more later too. But for now, right? For now, I've got to provide these people opportunity to be disciple makers. And again, they can decide during the course of the week if they don't want to do it on a Sunday night. Donnie says, no, I'd just rather go into the service and, and hey, you know, can we meet before breakfast, before we go to work, to the factory, you know, one day a week at 6 a.m. That's fine. They can do that. I'm just saying I'm providing for them as a pastor a way out so the rest of their schedules don't have to be killed, but it's still intentional and meaningful. But when we're done with the final few chapters of the walk, we jump over here to what we're going to learn next. But before we go through those, what does it say in the fine print underneath that green arrow? Meet monthly. You see how you back up? Because now he's meeting weekly with someone over here. I can say, Donnie, we're still got the rest of this stuff to go through the rest of our lives. We're not in a hurry, right? So let's meet once a month. What's a good time? One Sunday night a month, maybe? Oh, yeah, I can do that better than every Sunday night. Good. Now at Grace, we've opened Sunday school. So our people can study together in three of our four services a week. And they don't have to make their service to the Lord expendable. They don't make worship expendable. But we've prioritized disciple making and spiritual reproduction around the word. I don't have to worry about a church being created within the church because I know what they're studying. I've written it or approved it, or we have. So I don't have to worry about doctrinal aberrations. I know that we have another layer of protection because as I lead him, I am also following somebody more mature than I am. And I even do this as the senior pastor. I have two men that disciple me twice a week. Right? As I disciple. Even as the senior pastor. You're not going to get your people to do it unless you're doing it. So many pastors leave themselves undiscipled in their own church. All right? So, yeah, we need more time because I've got to have time to meet with my guy once a month. I've got to meet with him once a month, and he's meeting weekly. Are you see how you've got to be creative with those three services? One time a week, non-negotiable, we're all together, and that's the morning service. We worship together as a body. That certainly is biblical too, right? We're not told in the New Testament. All we're told is don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. An increase, more and more. <laughs> okay? But if you look at the New Testament for what it really is, that gathering together was not only exclusively to hear expositional preaching. It included it, <laughs> but it was not exclusively that. Okay? So anyways, but we're all still worshiping together. So go over here to the bottom of this next arrow. What does it say in the fine print there? Meet regularly. So now he knows I'm his guy and I still have my guy, but we're meeting maybe once a quarter together. So what we're doing is we're reading whole volumes. We're reading whole books on our own. And then when we get together, we're going to talk about those books. Right? And maybe he and I have both won somebody else to Christ and we're back here again meeting weekly with them. Right? And maybe 
you know, I'm meeting once in a while with my guy and I'm meeting him once a month still. You see how it's just organic? So let's go back here to the walk. Let's say we've been studying for three and a half, four years, and all of a sudden Donnie one night's on his phone at home, and, and um, um, uh, he's just clicking through, and a pop-up comes up on his Twitter, an ad, and he clicks it. And it's a deceptive ad, right? Let's say it's an ad about, you know, drink milk, right? And... He clicks on it, and it goes to a, a soft porn site. Oh, wow. Well, let's say before he was converted, he had a real problem with that. So he just taps on it again. He even had his devotions that morning, right? Is it possible to actually be tempted with porn even though you had your devotions one morning? So he taps on it again, right? 20 minutes later, he's 12 taps in, and the Holy Spirit just boom. How in the world did I get here? Right? How in the world did I get here? So instead of picking up the phone and calling the pastor, who does he call? Call me. How in the world has this happened, Tim? This is crazy. I haven't been stuck in this stuff since I got saved. I need help. <laughs> right? So we can stop our study in the walk right there. Because we can jump way over here. And way over here in this era are four major areas where every believer struggles or needs help. And what are those four major areas, right? Loving your family, moral purity, time, talent, treasure, stewardship, and biblical worldview, thinking biblically, right? Being a critically thinking believer. And we've provided and or written for our people resources that... I'm confident my people can go through. So we'll jump over here and we'll study purity for a while. Hey, hey Donnie, listen. I mean, we learned way back here that you need to confess your sin. Did you do that? Oh, yeah. Well, then you're forgiven, right? I sure don't feel like it. Well, just remember, that's just a feeling. The fact is, you confessed it and you're made white as snow, right? Well, I don't even feel like I'm saved. Well, remember, assurance is a feeling. Eternal security is a fact. Assurance is a feeling. You don't feel like it doesn't mean that you're not. So let's get back to the facts, right? Now, right, let's study why and how that happened. And let's walk together. And by the way, Donnie, let me tell you how I failed too. And how God helped me through my discipler. Get back on my feet and walk past that temptation and that failure. Okay? And we just walk together through it. The pastor may never know he fell that night. Is that okay? I think so. I think so. We don't really ever want the pastor to know unless it comes to an unfortunate Matthew 18 process, right? And the pastor wouldn't want to know. He's just glad that someone's shepherding him through it and, and walking through that with him, right? So anyways... We can jump up here if we need to, but we're always going to go back to the milk and work from the milk to the meat, okay? But there's enough resources on here where we can help each other out with just about every topic in life, right? What does it say over here vertically to the far left? Right? What does it say way over here to the far right vertically? Last breath. 
So from his new birth in Jesus Christ to his last breath on this earth, I know that it's going to be my life to his life for the whole of what? Our lives. Hard to wrap your minds around. We're going to walk through again tomorrow even more detailed process of how this lets us become a reality in your church. Remember, if it's biblical, it's doable, any size church, any culture. Okay? Growing each up as spiritual family. Right? Right next to new birth in small print, it says salvation. And way over here on the bottom right, it says what? Legacy. When old people die in our church and they leave a legacy, what does that usually mean? They left money. They wrote the big check and maybe even got their name put on a room or their name put on a building. Okay? In this process, though, in this process, what's the legacy? They're leaving souls behind who are perpetuating the Great Commission. They're leaving a next generation. They're leaving a church that's able to sustain itself and see Jesus grow it. It's a big difference. I'm 51 years old in a disciple-making process, right? I don't, I, there's just no way that I'm going to be the pastor of our church until I'm 60. There's just no way. One of the unexpected God-intended blessings of disciple-making cultures that 2 Timothy 2.2 actually organically happens. You don't even have to plan on it. Commit faithful things to faithful men so that they could do the same thing. Do you remember how if I usher, I can lead Donnie into ushering, remember that? Sound booth ushering, money counter, whatever it is. That's happening, but it's also happening pastorally. Noah led Frankie to Christ. I'm discipling Frankie. Guess all, guess what all that Frankie can talk about? I think it's really cool that you're a pastor. I, I want to find out more about that. I think God wants me to be a pastor. Broken home, lives with his mom. Her mom just got saved. His mom just got saved. Just when are we going to study about that? Just I, we're getting there, you know? <laughs> Hang on. Right? It's gonna happen. What does it feel like, like when you get to baptize someone? What, is, like, what does that feel like inside? He's just always wanting to know. Do you get scared when you preach? Can I go see someone in the hospital with you like you came to see me? So you just know the kid was probably gifted with this stuff, right? Because he's lusting after this as a, just a kid on Cheerios still, right? But we're discipling. I'm telling you, we don't know what the Holy Spirit had planned for us until we get involved with this. He said he would do it. He said he would build his church. And that includes raising up Generation 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0. I get calls monthly from around the country of pastors who are 65, 75, 85, and not long ago, 95. And they're telling me, I have nobody. What do I do? 95-year-old pastor, right? Weeping, godly man, sweet man, right? A lot of guys that went out of his church as pastors, and he didn't even raise up his own Timothy to replace him, right? Good people, right? They not only 
are done, they don't know where they're going, even though they know they're done, they don't know who's replacing. So the typical thing that we do is what? We go to our constitution and there's little, this little section there called the pulpit committee. And what do pulpit committees do? <laughs> More often than not, right? We're not even really equipped, right? And so what happens? The pastor leaves... And they have to spend how long trying to find the next guy? Huh. And what's happening to the church while they wait? We know this, right? We, we can all write the final sentence of that story. But it's the antithesis of what happens in a disciple-making environment. This, this What I'm talking about right now most fundamental Bible-believing Baptist people look their nose down still at what I'm saying. They still do. And these are pastors who don't have a replacement and they're old. They don't know where they're going. They don't know who's coming. But my goodness, it's got to be the pulpit committee. It's got to be the corporate model. Why? Because that's just what we've done. No, look at your Bible. Look at your Bible. Right? Jesus had some next men up, and those men had next men up. <laughs> so all I'm trying to say is be encouraged. <laughs> be amazed then, and watch the Holy Spirit do what you never thought he would do, because you've never seen it done, in raising up the next generation when you just step out and just begin to take the baby steps of disciple-making. Okay? Seriously, I'm 51 years old, right? And we are actively talking about who on our staff is going to be taking my place. There's just no way. I don't want to stay there and keep that from happening. I mean, that's like me telling my 18-year-old kids, you're not going to college, right? You're going to stay in my home till you're 30, Right? And you're not going to get married till you're 35. You can start dating at 34. Right? That's, that's actually what we're doing ecclesiastically. And when you don't allow them to take the natural spiritual progression that's in the Word of God, they will leave or they will stay and be a problem. It's got to have a natural organic process to this. And disciple-making is the fruit. Well, it's the fruit of disciple-making. Right? I was the youth pastor. I led to Christ, our youth pastor, when he was 13 years old. Right? Our other assistant pastor, I was his youth pastor. And as they're growing up, I'm licking my chops. Which one of these guys is going to be the next pastor at Grace? I can't wait. I'm not in fear. So what am I going to do when I'm done there? I, there's plenty to do. I'll go pastor another church and try to set up the same model there and hand it over to somebody else. I don't know. Right? So what if the people don't want you to go? I don't know what to tell you. I got to go. I just have to go. Because you want them, don't you? A year ago in November, we had um, a celebration of Youth Month. 
And uh, it was our 70th anniversary. So I was celebrating what God was doing in different groups in the church. So November was celebration of youth month. So the final week of that month, I said, hey, uh, we have a family time in our morning service. All right, family time today. I said, if there's any boys or men here that feel they may have been gifted by God to be a pastor teacher, um, I want you to come on up front so people know how to pray for you. I, I kind of knew who would, but I didn't know 13 would come. Right? Um, so 13, I think it was like, I don't know, third, fourth grade, all the way up to, you know, late 20s, early 30s, trying to think the oldest guys, probably late 30s. And they came up on the stage. And, and people were just excited, right? But then I said this. I said, folks, say hello to your next pastors and church planners at Grace Church of Mentor. And they just erupted with applause. They gave those boys a standing ovation. Right? Very few dry eyes in the auditorium. They were excited. Why? I grew up in that church. They know our two assistant pastors are going to be the next guys. And now these guys are training those guys to be the next guys. I said, folks, this should be happening until Jesus comes. You should never have to worry about who your next pastor is going to be if you're going to do it biblically. Never. It's right there, 2 Timothy 2.2. It's like right there. Right there. That was Paul writing to Timothy, who was the pastor where? At Ephesus. So in Ephesus. It should happen in Ephesus. And if it's not, there's something wrong. With who? With the pastor. <laughs> okay. It was with us. So anyways, anyways, we, 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 we won't beat that dead horse. It's, it's been dead a long time. All right. So anyways, it just naturally happens um, out of this, and, and, and we're excited about that. Um, so anyways, I, I, I was called. Uh, you guys get these calls, too, if you've been in ministry a long time. You know, you're pastoring a church, and someone get, you know, calls you and says, we... We feel God wants you to be our next pastor, right? Our pulpit committee's gotten together and, and, and we prayed and God put your name on our hearts and, and we, we just know you're the man. So this one church from South Carolina called me and, and I was like, oh, wow. I said, uh, that's interesting. And they said, why do you say that's interesting? And I said, well, I didn't know God spoke like that. And I said, what do you mean? We prayed and God put you on our hearts. I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I'm your guy. And they said, yes, you're our guy. We feel it's God's will for you to be our pastor. And I was like, well, did you call my senior pastor? No. God's laid on our heart to call you. So would you pray about it? And I said, no. And they said, we're going to call you back in a week the pulpit committee chair, and uh, you pray about it for a week, and we're going to call you back to get your answer. I was like, I'm not going to pray about it. If you call back, I'll probably answer the phone, but my answer is going to be the same. The dude did it. He called me back in a week, and he said, hey, this is brother so-and-so from such and such church, and he said, will you come see us? And I said, no. He said, have you prayed about it? And I said, no. And he said, 
why? Like, there's no way you can be walking with God if you weren't willing to pray about what God laid on our heart. I was just like, look, you know, you're in a Christian college town. I said, you have over 800 people in your church. A ton of them are Bible students at that Christian college. Are you with me? Something's not right here. Right? I said, you don't want me to be your pastor. Because I could never shepherd it like some of those boys could who have grown up there. You don't want me to be that guy. So no. God's called me here. <laughs> this is where I'm at. It's Second Timothy 2. You have to be really, really careful with this. And all I'm saying is it becomes more and more solidified the more you have a, 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 a disciple-making environment. Now, some, a lot of pastors, uh, there's quite a handful of pastors that I'm working with in their 50s, 60s, and 70s said, there's no way. And I get this, you guys. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. I'm not trying to be caustic. But listen, I, I know that there's some pastors, it's way too late in their ministry career. To, to, to have someone raised up to take their place. I get that. All I'm saying to that age group is start something. So whoever the next guy is could at least come into something that they have to agree with what started upon your you know, after your departure. Are you with me? They at least got to know that you started off in a disciple-making and they have to agree to continue it. So then let them enjoy we went this, uh, there's a Men for Christ meeting for uh, independent Baptist churches in, in the Midwest, uh, four states, four pastors. I preached at it in June in the, just south of Chicago. And um, uh, one pastor came up to me uh, after this little section. He was just in tears. And he said, I, I've just failed. He goes, what you're saying is exactly right. And I, he said, I've just failed. He said, how in the, what do I do? I said, you weren't a failure. You understand how many things you've done, right, for the Lord that have been honorable? And I said, my generation's here because of your faithfulness. You haven't failed anything. He goes, I'm not doing this, though. I said, oh, it's never too late to do right, right? Let's just do it together, All right? The natural reaction of, of spirit-filled, sensitive, seasoned, older men is to be convicted unnecessarily or, or unduly convicted. We still have to move on and, and do something like this together. Okay? All right, any questions or thoughts? Do you understand the basic purpose for this map? Is it institutional? Is it an organic process? <laughs> yes. All right, I'm just providing time and resources for our people to learn it. This is the way I'm equipping my people to do the work of a ministry of growing each other up into a greater understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ unto God's glory. It's just a way. Like I said, we're just a model. We're not the model. We'll look at a model here as we wrap up the afternoon, um, but just do something. I, 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 I was told that when Dr. Roland McCune was one of my seminary professors, a wonderful man. He just went home to be with the Lord recently. 
Um, he said on the first day of class, he said, men, you've made one of the most important decisions in your life because a Master of Divinity degree will save you 15 years of ministry agony. <laughs> I was like, all right, whatever. We didn't grasp that, you know. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of guys, you know, including my dad, they were just good, godly, self-trained, passionate guys that are in the ministry, right? Don't even have the money or the time to go to seminary. And I understand that. Um, but we did, and we were there, and that's what he said. And you know what? He was right. I, I couldn't believe it. I had an undergrad and a master's degree. And, you know, seven years in the ministry, I feel like I'm on empty. <laughs> and so five years later, because I had to travel to get it, it took me five years. Um, I, looking back on it now, he was, he was absolutely right. All I can tell you is looking back on our disciple-making journey now, I will tell you that something like this seminar and something like this could save you 15 years of ministry agony if you'll go through the process that we'll go through tomorrow of inching our way into the culture. Okay. It just is what I call Smokey the Bear theology. It's fire prevention stuff. And the early part of our ministry, that's we pretty much spent our time just regularly putting out fires from apparently seasoned veteran people in our church. Right? Most of the fires we put out with were our most long-standing members. Okay. And then you're scratching your heads when they're donating. So why, why, why? And we went through that history, okay? But now it's not like that. I can't remember the last time we had to put out a fire because no one has time to make issues out of non-issues anymore. Why? What are they doing? How much time does it take to shepherd a baby? See? No one has time anymore. And actually, when they're done shepherding that baby, they don't even have any energy, let alone the time, <laughs> because it wears them out. Okay? All right. Should we take a 10-minute human break? All right, let's take a break.